This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Last week, I was sitting on my in-law's porch in coastal Georgia, watching the rain and wind and lightning pummel the beach in front of us. It was part of Tropical Storm Elsa, and as we were watching it, my husband and I started talking about the strength of this storm, about the likelihood of more, about the heat that was roasting the Pacific Northwest and Colorado and California. And I wanted to know whether all these extreme events were caused by climate change. It's a natural question. But it's also what climate scientists like Daniel Swain think is the wrong one. My reaction to the question of did climate change cause this, say, extreme weather event of some kind in some specific place is actually frustration with the way the question is being framed. Swain studies the intersection of climate and weather at UCLA. And he says that when you pose the question the way I did, you almost always get a preordained no, because no one thing causes any one weather event. And so the real answer, I think, that people are looking for is actually to the slightly different question of, did climate change affect the likelihood or the severity of the thing I just experienced? And the answer to that, lately, is yes. It's not like California has never seen wildfires before or the West has never seen drought before or New York City has never seen summer thunderstorms and downpours before. The question really is a matter of degrees, literally. Today on the show, Daniel teaches us how to ask the right questions about climate change to understand our reality and maybe even find a little optimism in this summer of extreme weather gloom. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. In thinking about the past few weeks, We've just been inundated with heat, the heat dome, heat emergencies, marine die-offs. Is there anything about this summer that feels different to you? I would say yes. Um, This year, globally, really shouldn't have been an extraordinarily hot year, uh, at least in recent terms, because this is a La Nina year, which essentially means that the water temperatures in the eastern tropics were significantly below average, which usually means the U.S. and the world in in general are a little bit cooler on an annual basis than they otherwise would have been. We're not seeing that this year. In fact, this is tracking to be one of the warmest years on record globally, and we just experienced the hottest June on record across global land areas. But I think closer to home in in the United States and in particular in the Western US, this has just been a really miserable start to summer uh, where many, many places have experienced not just the hottest temperature on record for the date, but the hottest temperature that these locations have ever recorded in many cases in over a century of record keeping. These two things are happening simultaneously. These big spikes in local temperatures, what we refer to as weather, and then the overall warming, climate. And the point of asking the right questions is understanding how they come together. All of this makes me think about this question of of weather versus climate. We started by talking about the connections between the two. And I wonder what you would say is the, the more helpful way to think about the differences and the relationships between weather and climate. So really the way I increasingly like to think about it is that climate is weather in aggregate, if you will. It's not individual weather events necessarily, but if you if you scale up and look at a lot of different individual weather events across time and space, that's what climate is. And climate change in a lot of cases is important not so much because of the linear incremental trend No human or ecosystem will ever experience the global mean temperature, for example. We talk a lot about it, 1.5 degrees of warming, 2 degrees of warming targets, but those aren't important unto themselves. They're important because they're an indicator of what the weather and other Earth systems are doing. So I like to live a little dangerously and mix my weather and my climate uh, intentionally, but deliberately and, and cautiously. You know, one of my roles is to sort of bridge that temporal and spatial gap and talk about extreme weather in the context of long-term climate change. What's the risk in sort of thinking of weather and climate separately, of, of staying with that framing? 
Well, I think there's a couple of key problems if we maintain some really strict separation between weather and climate, as had been the case for a while uh, historically. One of the biggest gaps in public perception, especially in the U.S. surrounding climate change, is that it isn't affecting me or me as the individual. Hmm. There's actually a lot of broad societal recognition that climate change is real and is a problem. So correctly, people on average across the political spectrum actually realize this. But what's really interesting is that far fewer people believe that climate change uh, is affecting them personally. And I think that's probably because for a long time, folks were hearing just sort of this climate change and this nebulous abstract future sense, rather than actually the climate has already changed in ways that are tangible outside your window, but no one's really describing it or quantifying it. Some of Daniel's work does just this, quantifies the effects a warming planet may have had on extreme weather. It's called extreme event attribution. Scientists build mathematical models to show two scenarios, extreme weather with climate change and without. Essentially, what we do is ask, well, let's assume for a moment that climate change had no influence on any of these events at all. So there's a forest fire and it's just a forest fire. Yeah, there's, there's a forest fire or there's a heat wave and it's, it's just a heat wave and there's no contribution from climate change. We set up these intentional self-imposed straw men kind of arguments known as the null hypothesis for the purpose of uh, essentially demonstrating that if we, if we then have enough evidence to reject that null hypothesis to disprove the straw man, if you will, then that's sort of the basis for the attribution statement that climate change did in fact, beyond all reasonable doubt, affect this particular extreme weather event. An example of this just happened in the past few weeks. A group of 27 climate scientists analyzed the recent heat wave in the Pacific Northwest and published research saying it would have been virtually impossible without climate change. That's a classic example in general. And it's a classic example partly because the most clearly attributable physical event type are extreme heat waves. The reason for that is that it's, you know, it's directly a a question of temperature. So sometimes we'll be talking about other kinds of events, you know, heavy downpours or hurricanes that are related to temperature, but you're actually still trying to quantify something that is not directly temperature itself. Temperature can influence the amount of rainfall or the strength of a hurricane, but not directly. In the case of heat waves, it's just a matter in a lot of cases of quantifying how much worse the heat wave was made or how much more likely the heat wave was made uh, by climate change. You run this this weather blog that looks at California, and I wonder when you look at the temperatures on there and the wildfires on there, I mean, I just took a quick scroll through them. Is there anything on there now that isn't influenced by climate change? It's an interesting philosophical question because if you took whatever was happening in the, you know, in the, in the globe right now and then just added a fraction of a degree uh, of temperature change in either direction, warming or cooling, so just 0.05 degrees to every location on Earth right now, you would fundamentally alter what the weather patterns on Earth would be a couple of weeks from now. One way of thinking about that is because climate change, global warming has already detectably influenced the climate, at least at a minimum, 
through, through rising temperatures everywhere on earth, then in a certain sense, every weather event is, is influenced by, by climate change in some way. Now, it doesn't always mean that it's in the same direction. Some of these may be um, more, more like the butterfly effect where you're just, you're just, you know, you're adding the ripple on the pond and it's evolving differently than it would have otherwise. And so what extreme event attribution is really doing is trying to discern those systematic changes from those, those more random perturbations. We're not seeing more extreme cold waves, for example, globally, but we are seeing more extreme heat waves. When it comes to extreme downpours, for example, even in places where precipitation isn't increasing on average, we're seeing more of these intense bursts of precipitation. So some things are not necessarily changing in a systematic way, but other things are. And sort of being able to discern which is which is sort of at the heart of extreme event attribution. When we come back, where Daniel finds a little hope in all of this bleak news. Hey everybody, it's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. This is What Next TBD. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and I'm talking with Daniel Swain, a climate scientist at UCLA. When you listen to someone like Daniel, it can be disheartening. You can get lost in the overall gloomy picture and wonder if it's too late. And that is exactly the attitude Daniel does not want you to have, despite all the difficult news he and other climate scientists have to deliver. It's kind of like being an oncologist where you only really get to give the bad news. You never get to say that the great news, the cancer's in remission. You always have to say, you know, 
No, it's it's still getting worse, just like we thought before. So on some level, that's not that's actually a pretty uh, de- depressing position to be in to be constantly delivering bad news. But on the other hand, and this is this was the subject actually of a of a, of a recent essay by a climate scientist Adam Sobel, who pointed out that it is actually really important to be talking about regional climate change and extreme events in a climate context precisely because those are the things that we might actually be able to adapt to to some extent or 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 build resilience to and we really need to understand them and quantify them if we're going to do that because okay if you're actually trying to prevent harm from happening to people or to ecosystems what do you do with the knowledge that you know we've seen 1.3 degrees celsius of global mean warming what does that actually tell you as a city planner or an emergency manager, it doesn't really tell you anything, right? But if you know that in a particular place that you're going to be more likely to see hurricane storm surges that that are higher than the seawall, or if if you're an emergency manager in Portland, Oregon, or or Vancouver, British Columbia, places where uh, generally it doesn't get very hot or there's not a lot of local resilience to truly extreme heat, that you are going to start to see events like the one that we just experienced on a, on a more regular basis, that's actually really actionable information. There are other links in this chain that need to be fixed too, where binary thinking has got to be tossed out and better questions need to be asked. Take the past few weeks. If you look at Colorado, headlines about the heat dominated the local news. Get ready for the return of triple digits, the brutal heat, brings with it higher fire danger. We're talking record-breaking heat here, and we're not done with that just yet. Heading into tomorrow, those temperatures are going to be breaking the record pretty likely. So just how hot is too hot for our dogs? But very few made the connection to climate change. One Colorado reporter found only six stories in 150 even mentioned it. Drawing those connections can help illustrate the reality that we are all living in and help people take local steps while politicians wrangle about the bigger picture. We still have to solve the underlying problem of global warming, though. So oftentimes, this will be framed in terms of, do we need to mitigate climate change? Do we need to bring climate change to a halt by by bringing our carbon emissions to zero? Or do we just need to adapt? And of course, I think you probably can predict where I'm going with this. It's not an either-or question. It's an and situation where we need to be aggressively Uh, working to solve the underlying problem of climate change by bringing emissions rapidly to zero. And then also, in the meantime, because there already has been harmful warming and there will be further harmful warming before we solve the underlying problem, we also need to be doing that adaptation. It's kind of this interesting place where the big macro questions, we kind of know what we need to know. We know that global warming is real, that we're causing it, and that it's a big problem. But on the local level, the details are still uncertain, yet really important. So what do you think of a, of a broad stroke measure like the European Commission's plan? They just said, we're going to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases by 55% by 2030 compared to, to 1990 levels. That is a, a big political lift, but that's one of those kind of macro strokes that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, the only way we're going to solve this is through uh, increasingly grand macro strokes, I mean, that's just the scale of the problem. It's not a problem that can be addressed at the local level. 
it, it gets harder and harder to implement large changes in society if you have to do it very fast versus slowly. Um, we're kind of losing the opportunity to do some of these things slowly now because we still haven't really bent the carbon curve in any meaningful way as of 2021. We still can. The good news is we are still in control of the climate system. And it is always remarkable to me the degree to which the science suggests that's still the case. Once we pull the plug on carbon emissions, we, we will stabilize the climate pretty quickly. That's the good news. Hmm. But we haven't done that yet. It's not that we're on a runaway train where the brakes don't work. We're just on this train that's careening downhill. The brakes are perfectly fine, but the conductor's just deciding not to use them. I've been listening to you talk, and you are so thoughtful and measured and sort of considered in everything you say. How how are you not screaming all the time? Well, maybe I, maybe I am on the inside. I, I uh, hearken back to the, I believe it was the Japanese theme park ad- advisement during COVID to please scream on the inside um, rather than expelling your lung contents into the air around other people on the roller coaster. But I think that as a scientist, I have a personal fascination with the system. So if this were just some, you know, some microcosm existing in isolation that didn't affect people or the or, or ecosystems, then it would just be really fascinating to watch this evolve in a Petri dish, right? The problem is it's us. This is our, our, our world. This, these are our lives that we're talking about. It's actually this, this constant tension between being interested in what's happening intellectually as a scientist and being horrified by what that means for the world that we all inhabit. I'm constantly talking about all of this. It's sort of all consuming actually. And so it's not just a matter of the public communication and speaking to to folks like you and to journalists, but it's also a matter of having these conversations with policymakers and people who are actually implementing or, or, or should be implementing the kinds of changes that we, that we need to see. And so I guess that this is our way of, of, of screaming. Daniel Swain, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation today. Daniel Swain is a climate scientist at UCLA, and he runs the blog Weather West. That is our show for today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks, and we're edited by Tori Bosch and Allison Benedict. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want to learn a little bit more about how we got to where we are in the climate crisis— I recommend listening to Tuesday's episode of What Next, which is all about how Exxon gets its way. Mary Harris will be back next week. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.